When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are and whatever time it is. Welcome to the Roker Report podcast, hosted by myself, Morgan Lowry. I'm delighted to be joined by a voice synonymous with Saturday afternoons and evenings from World Cups to the National League North and probably everywhere in between, the unmistakable voice of Mr. Guy Mowbray. Guy, how are you doing? I'm all right, considering. Considering everything, yeah. I hope, hope everybody else is doing all right as well, or as all right as they can be. I don't want to get too bogged down in the coronavirus situation, um, but what's life been like for you recently? How are you keeping yourself occupied in this this world? It's been okay-ish. The really strange thing is when we have a quiet week, there's always something to do in this job. You're always prepping ahead. So, for example, if I'd had a quiet week and we'd be leading up to International Weekend, I was actually supposed to be doing the England game that was scheduled against Italy this coming Friday night. Obviously, that's gone. Obviously, everything's gone. So, normally, you'd sort of be making the most of a bit of downtime by I'd be preparing for the European Championships. I'd be getting some stuff in the can, well, not in the can, but, you know, on my computer, getting getting some pre-prep done on the players that might be involved. And I have nothing. I can't prepare for anything. I can't even prepare for the next Premier League game because I don't know where it'll be, what it'll be. So I can't actually do anything, which, which, which is really, really strange. And I'm not enjoying it. I'm trying to treat it as a holiday in my head, but you just can't quite relax properly yet. I think it's difficult as well. You mentioned the word holiday, but really it's it's not a holiday, is it? Because oh, not at all. you're trapped and there's limited things you can do and you've got a responsibility because you don't want to go outside no, more than you need no, to. You, and... you, you, you shouldn't think of it like that. I was just purely talking about our industry. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. You know, you, you, have, you have defined sort of, you know, my break was going to be after the Euro, sort of a two, three week window before the next season. Well, I'm mm. assuming, I'm assuming with no knowledge whatsoever of this, um, I'm assuming that, once this is over, and please God let it be over soon, um, or as soon as possible, um, and we get back to football, there'll be no break for a long, long time. So I'm sort of trying in my head to think, well, this is enforced downtime that I didn't want, but I've got to try and get some R&R and try and sleep well and try and get a bit of rest. But yeah, it's not a conducive situation to rest, is it? It's not important either, is it? Let's be honest. It's not important. I, I keep seeing all this stuff about how we're going to do it. Is the season going to end? Then how does the new season start? Yeah, OK, these things have to be discussed and considered, but not right now. Not right now. Those those in the Premier League and the Football League can have a think about it themselves and, and, and mull over several ideas, but we don't need to know anything. For quite a while, we don't need to know anything. Everybody's efforts should be just on beating this bloody scourge. We completely agree. Wise words. I suppose then a sensible place to start on um, the journey of your career would be to look at where you 
where you began, which I believe was Club Call Network, which I've got to admit was before my time. And yeah, then it would be, yeah. And a move to BBC Radio New York after that. There was multiple sports that I believe you covered, but was your first love always football? It's it's all I've ever known. Um, I, I wanted to be a footballer. That was it. Uh, this is my second choice career, without a doubt. I was never, ever going to be good enough. I was, realistically think, speaking, nowhere near. I, I was a decent decent junior player and I suppose thought I was better than I was I was captain of every team I played for I think I think that's actually helped me in that I, I think I knew the game and knew what to do but as a player couldn't always do it um <laughs> I, I, there's there's plenty of people like that so it, it was it was my dad one day with a throwaway line who said look you're not getting paid for playing it you could try and get paid for watching it and um something just resonated in my head I don't know if it was a serious line or what but my dad was a PE teacher in his time and it was a qualified football coach way back when so I sort of put all my energies into writing letters trying to get opportunities and that's how the club call thing came about and and that's where it started really um from there one thing leads to another you get into local radio and then somebody else hears you and says would you like to do a bit for us and then they find out you're reliable and half competent then you do a bit for them and and just be reliable be available be polite uh, be you know just be yourself really and that's the way I got on that's what took me to covering York City, Hull City, Leeds United, and then took me to my first sort of full-time job in broadcasting, then took me to radio, and then took me to the North East, which is um, where you come in, I guess. Yeah, it would be, and I suppose um, what I take out of that is that that's one fantastic bit of advice from your father that's obviously led to you having a career that you love and obviously where you've been really successful. I suppose a lot of that experience was formed, like you say, when you've moved up to the northeast with, with Sun FM and, and later Metro Radio, which would be when you joined part of the formidable trio of Guy, Gilly and Gatesy. Um <laughs> So, really, a couple of questions on that one. Do you still hear from the other two? And, and do you think a show like that would work in 2020? That show would work in any era because it was just us being us. And that was it. And I was so fortunate to get with, well, Gates in particular. I'll, I'll, I'll come to Gilly lately, later because Gilly was kind of an add-on to it, really. Uh, but Gatesy, Gatesy in particular was brilliant. I haven't been in touch with either of them for years because things move on and it's a bit like being a footballer and you move from club to club and you you're here, there and everywhere. So you do just lose touch as you move around. I last saw Eric about three, four years ago at a Sunderland match. It might have even been one of the last derbies, actually. Bumped into him afterwards, made a quick drink and a chat and a catch-up. And trouble is with Eric is he has no bloody mobile phone or anything. So he's like living in the dark ages. Yeah, living in the dark ages. So, so if you don't get him on his landline, I haven't got his landline number anymore. You, you he's definitely not a social media man. So you, you can never get hold of Eric. I do still see Marco all the time, by the way, and speak to him most weeks. So uh, that's that's the other side of that partnership. But yeah, that, that programme would exist in any era whatsoever. Gilly was well known to a lot of people in Sunderland. We realised he'd be a really good asset with the club because he was in, in with the club with you know, he, he was mates with the players and him and Reedy were pretty close as well. And and, and so we, we got Gilly involved as an extra bit, just as a bit of fun. We, we actually thought, why not make this programme a little bit different? It's I, I made a conscious decision when I joined Metro Radio. I'd been at Sun FM for two and a bit years. I came from Minster FM in York, sister stations. They sent me up to Sun to do a, the football there. And Metro was always the bigger gig because they had a full match commentary. And when Sun sort of went, to the war, but not to the war, we got taken over and they decided not to do football anymore. Metro very kindly offered me a job there and then. I was very fortunate Charles Harrison was actually retiring. Charles was my predecessor, who was excellent, one of the great voices of the Northeast. So there was a vacancy there. And between myself and Mick Lowe's, who did Newcastle, and Sean, who was the, the head of programming, we decided, you know what, let's do something that we've not done before. Let's split it. 
let's completely split the coverage. Mick does Newcastle, and that's it. And I will do Sunderland, and that's it, because that's where I'm known from. And we shall not mix and match, and I won't do any of their games, and he won't do any of our games. And that's how we'll do it. And it worked. The ratings went through the roof. It worked a treat. You know, they were the enemy, jokingly, <laughs> obviously. You know, kind of, actually, at the time, it didn't feel very jokingly, but that, that's kind of how we made it. And it just worked. The ratings for both went through the roof. And, and it was the most enjoyable time of my career, without doubt, and, and will always be. Um, it's probably the hardest ever worked, but the most fun I ever had. So it didn't seem like work at all. We had a blast. And, and, and everything that's happened in my life came from those years, both the way I've progressed career, the way I'm with my wife, who I met at the time, everything, everything has come from those days. So, um, yeah, Sunderland and their supporters are just part of me. So... Obviously, I know you've got a, a long love slash hatred for York City, but um, <laughs> it's a love. It's a love. It's yeah, it really is. But you would definitely put Sunderland as your your second club then, in in that respect. Listen, I don't, I don't, I don't rank it. I don't, I don't put things like that. It's it's a bit weird. It's a bit, a bit like being a player. When when you're a player, you you grow up and you you support a team, but you're a player and it becomes a job. So you become a professional and and that kind of gets left behind. And when I was at Sunderland, the five years that I covered Sunderland home, my wife supported Sunderland. She, she's not really a football fan, if I'm honest, but she supported Sunderland. Believe it or not, she was born on the day they beat Leeds United in the FA Cup final. So, so <laughs> it, was almost, it, was almost, it was almost fate. Everything sort of came together. And I, I could never claim to be a born and bred Sunderland supporter. But for people who say to me, oh, who are you supporting this week? I just say, hang on a minute, hang on a minute. When you cover a club that it's your life and your career for five years and part of your life is wanting them to win and being around it and that's all you do, if you walk away from that and you have no connection, then you've got no soul whatsoever. Um, yeah. and I, already, I already had a connection anyway because of my York connection. You go back to Dennis Smith, Viv Busby, John McPhail, Marco. I, I was mates with Marco for years. You know, he's, he's been a mate for a long, long time. So there was that connection anyway. So it didn't take much to go, you know what, this is meant to be. This is absolutely made. And that's that's kind of that's kind of where we're at. By the sounds of it, then it's as close as being a fan without actually being a fan. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's a bit like a, a, an ex-player. It's a bit like <laughs> an ex-player. I bumped into Martin Scott recently. I was out in York for an afternoon. And I bumped into Martin Scott. Now, you know, he grew up in South Yorkshire. He had no connection, but all we talked about was Sunderland and how much he loved the club. And I was exactly the same. It was Quinny, wasn't it? Quinny said it, didn't he? He said. Manchester City was a love affair or whatever, but Sunderland got under his skin. It was that that comment, and that's absolutely true. That, well, that, that was going to be my next question, actually. Do you believe it's it's more so because of the, the relationship the fans have with the club that, that forms a strong bond that makes it a little bit different to other clubs? Not, a, not to be disparaging, but Sunderland have a very, you know, passionate and, and loyal fan base and, and a lot of people say it a lot of players say it and mm. it, sometimes it can be put down to you know well players are always going to say that when they're, when they're playing for yeah. the club but with Sunderland it, it does tend to, to feel like anybody who comes into any sort of close mm. contact does have that impression left on them well let's let's not let's not forget that I reckon diehard fans of, of any club could say that and yeah. and every club will have players and supporters like that but I personally believe I, I, I do believe from my time with Sunderland, it, it, it is it is something just extra special because of the history, because of the size, because of the ups and downs, and in particular in recent years, the downs. Um, it does become a stronger bond. You never leave it. I mean, we have it in York. We have people who, you know, they, 
York's a nice place to live and you get people who come and join York City and never move away, who've never been to the city before. Sunderland's the same. Sunderland's the same. Mm-hmm. Look at the, Borley would be the classic example. Here's a, here's a guy from the South Coast. He's not. He's a wearsider. That's mm-hmm. it. He embodies everything that we've just discussed. The greatest captain any team will ever have, ever. Absolutely yeah, finished. There is no argument to that. He was Sunderland, wasn't he, when he, when he played? He, he embodied everything that the club was about. I think that... It's just, it's just behind the scenes as well. Things that things that people maybe didn't... Well, they do realise now because they've seen what he's been like for years since he packed in playing. The stuff he did in organising the players and, and you know... He, when players are asked to do things that are beyond their remit, you know, go to charity things, go to hospitals, go to, think, you know, various things that he coordinated. People don't realize he coordinated all of that stuff. And with him, it wasn't a case of it's optional. It's you're doing it. Yeah. It was he was the leader. He was never the best player, the greatest talented, naturally talented player, but he was the leader. Everything came through him, and you, you, you're never going to get a better captain ever. When you hear people talk about him as well, yourself, players who played with him, against him, every everybody he says the same. So he's, his character precedes him. Yeah, um, without a doubt. And I suppose then getting back to the the commentary side, we've been fortunate in the northeast. I would say that we've had some brilliant broadcasters. Obviously, yourself, Simon Crabtree, now Nick Barnes. Um, hang on, hang on, hang on. You said brilliant broadcasting included crabbers. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm, I'm only joking. I'm, I'm, well, I'm hopefully, really, I, I really hope he listens. I, 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 I don't know whether he will, but we'll definitely make sure that he's um, he's tagged into the tweet when the podcast is released. So I, I, I love it. I love him to bits. I genuinely. We'll ask, do. We'll ask Sean to edit out the the positive words you've said and just leave in the uh, <laughs> the insults. No, but all jokes aside, I think with Sunderland recently, a lot of the stories write themselves, um, both on the pitch and off the pitch. Obviously, with with the sort of downward spiral the club's been on. But your time was, I suppose one of the more positive times in recent history. Um, well, it wasn't, it wasn't. It was a bit up and down at the time. <laughs> well, d- towards the end then, the I mean, we'll get on to the, the 98 playoff final and the, and the 105 point season, but yeah. I, I suppose during during your entire time covering the club, is there any one main standout moment, game, anything like that that, that really sticks in the mind? There are, there are so many. There are, there are just so many. But that 98 playoff final, <laughs> would be would be one of them because actually I think it was the making of all of us. It certainly stands out in my career if I'm going to just be selfish for a minute because we got awards for that for the coverage that we did on Metro. Um, yeah, we beat all the nationals, you Radio Fives and all that. We beat all those to get best sports program on the radio that year, and yes, it was because largely Sony, because of that game. Um, Sony Radio Academy Award. Yeah, when we we yeah. got we got we got Marco involved in that, I just suggested let's get Marco and Eric back together, and that's where this thing the G Force came in because the G Force were reunited. That was actually only for one game, because I thought let's beef it up. Let's I'll go down with Marco on the train and we'll we'll get that sorted on the radio. And the the, the next season it became the G Force, and then we started marketing it as it was Guy Gillian Gates before. <laughs> then it became the G Force, but Marco only actually did one game with us because he was still playing. Left an impression that <laughs> at the time he was still playing, but it, it just it just worked a treat. And that whole that whole weekend in London is still one of my favourite times to have been alive anywhere ever. <laughs> you, you know, I, I just remember we we we'd started saying on the radio the weeks before the Swindon away game uh, at the end of the season, which was awesome. <laughs> that was absolutely amazing. The takeover of Swindon. We were in a pub the night before, found a pub in Swindon. You, you, you probably noticed, wherever you go, it doesn't matter which town or city, you'll find a pub that has a landlord from Sunderland in it. <laughs> Everywhere you go. So it's marked down as we are going there. And we found a pub in Swindon and, and had a right old night the night before. And uh, I remember us going, right, well, we did the playoffs against Sheffield United in the semi-final. Didn't we? I remember on air going there, 
right, we're all down the Punch and Judy Covent Garden the day before the game. And those who were there, you're too young. Oh, God, I wish you'd been there, mate, honestly. You're too young. The night before, well, the afternoon before, we got down there and the pub is heaving. It is just red and white, absolutely all over. So this is the, was it Bank Holiday Monday, the game, wasn't it? So this Sunday afternoon, mm-hmm. Punch and Judy, everybody, absolutely everybody. It just got to a silly level where it's so rammed and there's songs. Marco and Eric are like the Pied Pipers. Wherever they went, there was a crowd <laughs> of people following them. And they, they had to shut. They got the police in and they had to shut the pub because there were too many people in and it wasn't safe. And the pub said, well, it's up to you. To the land. I remember we, we were called down as it's these lot that have organised it. All we did was say that's where we're meeting. That was it. Um, and they, they got the police in and they, they said to the pub, well, you can shut, but you'll have to shut for the rest of the day if you're going to do this. So they did. They took the decision to close down because it was just too much for them to handle. So then we went off to other pubs. Everywhere we went, there were crowds of people following us. And then that was, for me, my first experience of something that goes back to 73 and beyond, of the Trafalgar Square Fountain night. Mm-hmm. Because, that, because that night, we all went in, and I was in. I was drenched. It was Everybody was there, thousands <laughs> of people. And my abiding memory of that is some American tourist coming up and saying, you guys must have played a hell of a game today. And I just dripping wet. The cannon, <laughs> with a can in my hand, looked at me and went, game's tomorrow, mate. <laughs> and he just his face was just a picture he just thought we'd won the world series and his face was a picture as a game tomorrow mate and he couldn't he could not understand it for the life of him and i was so pleased last year the leasing.com final whatever it's called these days it can never work it out um, the leasing.com now it was the uh, uh what was it you have year? to give it the respect of the, of the, the mighty checker trade trophy is that uh, what it last was last season year? yeah it that's, was that's that's what it was last year well i went down the final and the night before um met up with a load of people and we did the same thing the night before and it was just it was awesome it was yeah. absolutely awesome it wasn't as good as 98 because nothing will be in my head but it was still awesome well i'll let you be the judge of that i mean i was i've been to the last um well it'll be three games at wembley obviously all ended in defeat but you yeah. kind of obviously at the time it's horrendous but when you look back with hindsight the game's almost an afterthought because the is night that, before is, like is, that, is, that, is that not why we made the most of the night before because well we're... well yeah because we, we know what's coming exactly <laughs> seven seven times in a row i think now um defeats at wembley I, I saw a post from somebody the other week actually saying i hope we never win at wembley because i won't know what to do <laughs> <laughs> I quite enjoyed that. How do you outdo the night before? And I actually seen somebody had a theory that the reason there was there was a few questions around um, fans' atmosphere at Wembley during the game, and somebody came up with the theory that everybody was too hungover to make an atmosphere. Oh no, so, no, I don't, nah, <laughs> no, I'm not, I'm not having that. I mean, it, it, that's the thing. If if we were to win at Wembley, then would would anybody actually have the energy to celebrate? Um, I'm, I'm sure they would find a way. A few few quiet cups of tea on the train and uh, shut shut your eyes and think about it. It's a little bit different now as well because of the. I think the other thing of the atmosphere is because it's third division, effectively, you know, League One, it's mm-hmm. it's it's not so much fun anymore, is it? This is a bit more serious, so the anxiety kicks in a little bit more. This is not just got to get out of this hellhole. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's more it's more business than pleasure, if you like. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I think the the games themselves. I mean, leading up to the the Checker Trade game with um, the the Checker Trade Trophy final at Wembley against Portsmouth. I remember the build-up to that. The mood was very kind of 
we don't really care if we win or lose. It's it's a yeah. day out. We'll have a good time. Obviously, we want to win. We want to break the curse. We want to win at Wembley. The the Charlton game, yeah, that was definitely that, that was a very serious game. Probably in my time supporting Sunderland, the only the only game that I can compare that to would be we played Crystal Palace at home in oh it must have been around two thousand four two thousand five in a the playoff semi yeah yeah playoff yeah. semi that, I, yeah I was there I was there that to me was probably the most serious atmosphere I've been in as a Sunderland supporter maybe um, we yeah. played Everton as well in the FA Cup quarter final at home and, and we lost there as well so I think let's be honest no football club deserves to be anywhere they are where they deserve to be effectively yeah. how they've performed the season yeah. before but yeah. I, you have to be honest I don't think anybody can disagree with the fact that Sunderland are, are simply are too big to be to be in League One and, and really yeah, I, it's, yeah. I, I, it, I'm, a, I'm a bit of a football snob I've got to be honest, I'm a bit of a football snob and it's probably because of the York City thing where I believe we should be, in modern terms, League Two or League One mm-hmm. natural home instead of National League bloody north. So I'm, I am I am a football snob and I grew up and to me, teams should be in the divisions they were in in 1979, 1980, 1981 <laughs> to 84. In the 80s, basically, that's, that's kind of where I believe teams should be. And I, I find it hard to reconcile when they're not. <laughs> so, no, yeah, I completely agree. It's weird. It's weird. that will always that will never leave you. By the way, you'll always find it weird. Like I, I still, even though I respect them fully and enjoy watching them play, I still go Bournemouth. What? Hey, no, hang on. You I know, totally and get I do, you. And I, and I like the football they play and I enjoy watching them and they deserve to be where they are. And I'm not, I'm not having a go at them. But I grew up watching them play my hometown team. Yeah. In Division Four. You know. <laughs> the, so. The, there is this image in your mind, isn't there, of, of the perfect Premier League, the perfect championship. Or Everybody has one, and, and Everybody yeah, has and it. yeah, it's just obviously relative to your own. Um, it, it's funny. Well, that, it, in fact, in fact, I don't know about you. It even goes so deep. It even goes so deep that thought that I'm even prepared to accept Leeds United going back up. Well, <laughs> I, wouldn't, is... I wouldn't be so sure about that. <laughs> you know, I'm even I'm even prepared to say, you know what, it's about time. Stop messing about. Um, yeah, and that takes some doing. We discussed that actually at the weekend um, on a podcast. We were talking about teams that, if this coronavirus crisis does result in in the Premier League and the Championship being postponed, well, sorry, not postponed, being completely voided, you couldn't think of, of three clubs in Liverpool, Leeds United, and, and Newcastle, obviously with their FA Cup run being mm. uh, more hard done to. I, yeah, I, I don't, right. I don't know how I would sleep at night with uh, Liverpool, Leeds, and, and Newcastle. No, you're right. I know, you, you're right. This this this, tra- <laughs> this 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 trans this transcends anything, though. Isn't it? We have a bit of a laugh about it, but it does transcend it, and actually. When you do what I do for a living, you go around all the clubs, etc. And you, you are neutral. You just become a professional. You don't have any thoughts like that. You genuinely don't. It's one team against another, and who deserves it deserves it. And it, it would be an absolute travesty if, if if Liverpool don't get the Premier League. It, it really would. I, I, I don't think it'll come to it. The season will be finished. We don't know when, and we don't know what form next season will take, but. It will be finished. The lifeblood of football is the fans, isn't it? Not to sound like overly cliche, but what, in my mind, I would like the season to be finished completely. I wouldn't like the Premier League to turn around and say, we're ending it. Liverpool, you're so far ahead. You can be awarded the title. Well, I hope not, because that would always hang over the head. And it's whatever your thoughts are, Liverpool, Manchester United, all the top clubs. Really, it's the fans. And I think after 20 years or however many years it's been since they've won a title, it would be it would be so cruel to take that away from them now. It's it's, it's their league. They are the champions. They are the best team in the country this season. And that's the end of it, really. Um, I I think the Premier League and the Football League have all said that the season will be finished. I'm, I'm more interested in next season, because if it's finished late on, 
then um, next season for a one-off, we might be looking at a very different structure. I don't know what, but um, just for a one-off, it could be very, very different. It might be exciting even for a year. Who knows? <laughs> well, I was going to get onto that topic um, later on, but we may as well discuss it now while we're on point. Yeah. I think the, there's been talks of possibly the top two in the championship being promoted to make a five-team Premier League and and then the rest of the divisions being essentially frozen and, and the season having no promotions, relegations. What 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 do you yeah. what would you like to see? What do you think would be fairest? Or? Well, I don't I don't like the idea of that. I don't like the idea of that because um I think with that I thought we're only thinking of the Premier League and the championship. There's a knock-on effect all the way down. You can't stop promotion and relegation when that's been the whole point of you playing for the season. So yeah. if they are going to finish, if they are going to finish the season, then promotion and relegation will be as it was. I would have thought. I don't know. There's nothing off the table, quite frankly, because this is so unprecedented and so difficult to negotiate. Um, but I, I think the season will be finished. There will be ups and downs, and it's it's next season, next season, because it might take a long time to sort this. And I, you know, my thought is, are we into next season with? I don't know, maybe for one year only, a regional north and south with each division split into two. You play the people in your... So, you know, for example, Sunderland, 24 teams in the league. So you do, what, 12 north, 12 south. You play 22 games, 11 home, 11 away against teams in your region. And then the top four in each section then play playoffs, as in a cup tie. I don't know, that's one possible solution for a one-off season. Again, there are broadcast ramifications with that. I'd find that quite exciting as a one-off for one year. Um, it's almost like the MLS do anyway in America, isn't it? With yeah. one conference and another conference. I, I think for a one-off year, if that's how we have to do it, but who knows? I, I don't suppose for the governing bodies there's anything off the table, but I believe this season we're so far in. I mean, let's be honest, if, if you go down to, to, to the level I'm looking at, at York City, there's only about six or seven games left of the entire mm-hmm. season. So it has to be finished with the rewards and the the, the punishment, if you like, for want of a better word, that your position gives you. Mm-hmm. I think from my perspective, being a Sunderland fan, and we've, we've probably been quite ignorant to the ramifications had this have happened when we were in the Premier League. I think because now we're in League One, we're in a position where the season couldn't be finished and you know you were taking away um, opportunities for games to be played, which is essentially mm. money to be made. Um, you'd be causing oh, probably in some cases irreversible damage to to some clubs yeah. who just simply can't afford to continue without this. This is this is awful. I, I, I'd be amazed if there aren't a few clubs go to the wall as a result of this. I'd be absolutely staggered if there aren't. Um, we had Bury. I think Bury was a different sort of case. I've, I'm not totally on top of that, but I think there was um, a lot of financial mispractice involved in that. So uh, that's a different sort of case. But there'll be there'll be some well-run clubs or reasonably well-run clubs that can't cope with this, and it's yeah, well, awful. It's awful. I've heard the argument. It's hard to disagree with it, that it's kind of only natural and we're overbloated with professional clubs anyway. I don't like that because clubs are the lifeblood of communities because, you know, my club would be involved, included in that. Who, who are we? York City in level six of football. You know, it's, it's nothing. Yeah. I'm, I'm only saying that because I had a guy from Belgium shadow me two, three years ago um, for a weekend and he asked who I supported and I said York City and he said what, where are they at and I said well actually they're in National League North that's the sixth tier and he said oh so it's amateur football I said oh no no club's fully professional and he could not get his head around that and he said in Belgium our top division is professional and that's it everything else is semi or amateur and he couldn't he couldn't get how this country sustains so many clubs and I sort of said well it, it kind of sustains clubs <laughs> um, but 
But let's be honest, we do, because there's my club at Division 6, effectively. Division 6 North, and we, we get 2,500 gates. Work that out. Yeah. We are we are a country like no other when it comes to football, and that's why if any club goes to the wall, it will be absolutely tragic. Sadly, I fear it will be inevitable. You mentioned Bury in there. That's another thing for the leagues to have to consider when when we look at how the leagues are rescheduled next year, because obviously there's only 23 teams in League One this year. And what you've mentioned there as well, regarding clubs going to the wall, I think there's been, well, in the north of England, in the northeast especially, you've had clubs who, for me, when I was growing up, were synonymous with being in the Football League. Your Hartlepools, who are now in the National League. York, obviously, now in National yeah. League. North Darlington, who were did drop out of the professional game, and then they've, of course, had to start again as a new club. So, I don't know, do, do you think there's a reason why, maybe it's not just in the in the North and Northeast, but do you think there's a reason why we're starting to see these these more established clubs falling away and, and, and finding themselves in this financial difficulty? I'm not a financial expert so I, I i don't know i i think it's chasing the dream and you know you're always chasing to get the level above and o- overdoing it and if you're overdoing it and there's not enough money coming in then closing down is inevitable in many cases and i think there's a lot of clubs doing that with, with, there's a there's a lot of people like to be involved in football who maybe shouldn't be who like the idea of um mm-hmm. owning a football club and the prestige that comes with it because it does it, you have prestige in the community and business and everything oh i own so and so and i'm not comfortable with that i i i Again, go back to, to say football snob. I'm also a football traditionalist in that yep. I still like, and not only because he's a, a magnificent man, but I still like the idea of Sir Bob Murray being chairman of Sunderland because there is a man who is Sunderland through and through, and that's what your chairman should be. I don't like the idea of somebody say, say for example, if somebody came in and took over York City tomorrow and they they were clearly only using it to get in the game, and then they'd be buying a big a bigger club later on. That stinks. You can't do that. You can't do that. Your owner should be, you know, when they do that fit and proper persons test. um, (laughs) Well, well, and and, and as far as I can make out, the question seems to be, do you have enough money to run this football club? And they say, yes. And then they go, right. Well, do you, oh, they say, no, not actually. Well, do you have on paper in theory, the money to run this football club? Uh, Yeah, yeah, I could do. Oh, okay. That'll do then. Um, that, That seems to be the extent of it. I would throw in a few questions. I'd throw in a test about the history of the club and the community around it. And if you can't answer them correctly, then sod you. You're not getting yeah. that club. No, I agree um, with that. Because, because it should be a part of it. I know that's I know that's idealistic. That's romantic. But that's what football should be. It should be romantic and idealistic. So, um, yeah, I, I, have a, I have a bit of a problem there. <laughs> Take your point, though. I think it's very valid. And even if you look at Sunderland themselves, the, the, the current owners, no, Stuart Donald, yeah, and, well, what, whatever, you, whatever you think of them, I think that you look at, Back when when they initially took over, there's been a, I don't know how closely you followed it, but there's been a lot of yeah. sort of confusion, let's say, over how they acquired the club financially. Yeah, originally yeah. it was originally yeah. that was it was it was liquid cash, if you like. Then it was, um, yeah. or we were we're backed by Ellis Short's parachute payments. Now there's loans left, right, and centre. So even when you look at a, a club like Sunderland, and I don't mean in terms of, of size history, I mean in terms of we had a substantial amount of debt probably yeah. the most amount of debt ever in uh, step three of English football yeah. so for these guys who are in charge now to to well by the sounds of it and by their own admission to be to be trying to, to scrap around to get money month to month it, it's an indictment of, of just how poor the this this fit and proper test 
yes, already tested. It is, it is, and I suppose if you if you take them as the example, I feel a bit sorry for Eastley, who were clearly just used yep. as a stepping stone to to further their aims of getting a bigger club. Um, mm. I don't like it. I don't like Ellis Short. I'll go on record as saying that I don't I, I don't like the guy, a hedge fund gambler who um, took on a massive football club with with one aim, making money. Nothing, not, and I actually, I actually believe if you look up the road and the headlines keep coming about Mike Ashley and stuff, if you look at how he actually runs the club for all whatever you might think of him and his business empire, etc., well, they're in the Premier League that, that, you know, and they carry on being in the Premier League. And every time they've gone down, they've gone up first time and got back into the Premier League and they're funded as a Premier League club. Um, I think um, he took, because of the headlines, he took a lot of the heat away from Ellis Short where the real crimes were being committed. And and it absolutely it used to wind me up to high heaven. I used to really tell people, "Hang on a minute, you're missing the point. There are bigger bigger problems down the road. If you'd like to just focus on that for a minute, you know." And and I, and I think that's maybe where it comes from. And and I look back to the, my time at Sunderland and, and think of the stick that Bob used to get. For goodness' sake, look back on that now. People would walk over broken glass to beg Bob to come back in and take the club over. Well, I mean, completely agree with you again. To get somebody local who really is passionate and loves the club in charge is ideally what every football club should really aspire to, or or every every fan should aspire to having that type of owner. And um, I think what you say about Mike Ashley—that's something that that's an opinion I've also held for a very long time. As a, I'm not, as a, I'm not saying by the way that he's doing a good job at Newcastle. No, I, I understand their frustrations completely and agree. Without with doubt, them. but but as a direct comparison between the two. Well, if 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 you look at the 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 money that's been spent, and you look at Sunderland as as the next door neighbours and uh, a prime example for a case study, Ellis Short was consistently throwing good money after bad, and it ended up in a situation of uncontrollable debt. A club that's now marooned in League One. Y- you look at Newcastle, like you say, yes, as a, as a person. I mean, you see in the news this morning that he wanted to keep a sport direct. Yeah. Direct stores open. Yeah. He's obviously not um, the most compassionate of human beings, let's say. But in terms of his ownership of the football club, financially, which you have to be very, very careful with, even in the Premier League, even with all the television money coming in, he's actually done, you know, a fairly reasonable job. The, the club's stable in the Premier League. Yeah. They're having a cup run this year. Okay, the choices of management might not be to the fans' liking, but I mean. Who could you have put well, in after after Rafa left to to satisfy? Well, there's, there's 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 another one. I mean, that's an old topic. We could we could go on for hours here, couldn't we? Because um, there's another one. They've they've got a really good manager. If only they knew it. I think they are actually realising it. And actually, I wish Sunderland fans had realised it a bit more at the time. Um, yeah, I always feel similarly about Bruce. I mean, if you look at when it started to go wrong, we had that transfer window where we lost Darren Bent and then there was a lot of players brought in who were sort of average middle of the road Mm. Premier League players and it didn't really work out for him. And because he had that Newcastle connection, then he didn't get the the time. But but, but this this comes back to what we were talking about earlier. And I understand it because I went through all the Lee Clark thing as well, you know, T-shirt gate. Um, Mm -hmm. So I I, I understand it and I know where it's coming from. I know how deep-rooted it is, but once you're a professional, you're a professional and you don't think about that sort of stuff. You really don't. I mean, for, for the year that Lee Clark played for Sunderland, nobody who saw that season could say that he gave anything other than absolutely everything he had and was arguably one of, well, not arguably, he was one of Sunderland's best players. So we get a little bit carried away as fans, I think. We, we, we look into it too deeply and think they're like us. They're not. They're just doing their job. And as long as they do it to the best of ability, we can't quibble whatsoever. 
Yeah. And same same goes for commentators because we get it as well. <laughs> but at least the fans don't chant your names in the uh the stands <laughs> telling you that you're getting sacked in the morning. No, I just I just get it on social media later on. That's that's the difference. The, the wonderful social media. We were just it's discussing been, that, weren't we? It's, it's, it's being very nice at the moment, but I'm sure once we're back to normal, it will. Uh, yeah, normal chaos, service will, chaos will rain again. So I suppose then, getting back about you, guy, you, you were the youngest ever commentator for a television well, World Cup final, and I so, believe you so, still are to this date. Well, so it so it says on the internet. I mean, how do you? Have they asked every TV network in the world? I don't know where that's come from, really. But anyway, I'll take it. <laughs> Regardless of the title, you were obviously still very young. We had 26, 26. Yeah, 26 yeah. at the time. So yeah. what was that like as an experience? Because, I mean, I don't know, you'll obviously be able to tell me better, but looks like you'd jumped from being the radio with some TV exposure to then obviously broadcasting to, to maybe thousands of Sunderland fans to then all of a sudden being plonked well, in the middle of a World Cup with millions of viewers around the globe. Not quite as simple as that. Just towards the back end of my days at Sun, Sun City 103.4 Supersport, as it was then. Catchy, eh? Um, yeah. <laughs> I'd started to do a little bit of work with, um, with television, with Eurosport, just a yeah. tiny little bit um, when I could. And when I got the job offer with Metro, I also had an offer to do quite a few um, programmes for Eurosport as well. So I kind of started the two together. Soon realised I'd taken on a bit too much. So I sort of rejigged my role with Metro to sort of be effectively, I was the sports editor, but part-time. That's when we came up with that idea of splitting Sunderland and Newcastle. Um, and that's why I say I worked, never worked as hard because half the week I'd spend in Paris covering games from the studio for Eurosport. And the rest of the week I'd be in Gateshead and Sunderland getting the programme ready and getting ready to commentate on the Sunderland games. Mm-hmm. And then I'd go off to Paris again on the Sunday or the Monday. Um, and that carried on for two and a bit years. That was, you know, that was incredibly, that, that was my schedule, but it was just brilliant as a 25, 26 year old. It was, it was awesome to be doing that. And then after that 98 playoff final, that whole weekend, when we'd been in the fountain, we had the disappointment at Wembley and all the drama. I went off on the Eurostar the next day for the first time for Eurosports um, World Cup 98 press briefing and got my picture taken with the World Cup in my hands uh, by the Eiffel Tower. Um, in a bright yellow shirt. It was very 90s. It was a bright yellow uh, Ralph Lauren knockoff polo shirt. And chose, choosing to wear a bright yellow shirt when you're going to hold the Gold World Cup in your hand was not a good move. Um, I have those pictures and I've completely ruined them with my choice of attire that day. But I, I, again, we can blame it on the Trafalgar Square hangover, probably. There's probably, um, probably been a time in history where that was quite fashionable. So Yeah, untucked, obviously. Um, and bleary, <laughs> bleary-eyed. So, yeah, that, that all happened in a whole weekend. Um, that's how I first got to know Steve Cram as well, who was a good mate of mine, because he was the athletics correspondent for Eurosport before he went on to BBC. All right. Um, so and he was fronting our um, coverage of the World Cup as well for Eurosport. So um, I, I worked with Crammy quite a bit um, and, and, and shared our woes of Wembley. Um, <laughs> um, so, yeah, we, th- th- that came about. And I got a call with my rotor shortly after that, the week after that. I got a call with my rotor to say... Um, uh, this is your schedule for the World Cup. And it was a secretary called Eva, who was very nice, actually, in every way. Um, she she worked at Eurosport and uh, she she and then she said, and on 12th of July, you will be doing the final. And I said, sorry, excuse me. I don't even work in there a year. And they said, yes, yes, you're doing the final. You're, you're co-commentator. And I was, sorry, what? And remarkably, they put their faith in me to, to do the whole tournament, including the final. 
which which Brazil v France, France winning, Zidane, all that was was just amazing. And it's still to this day probably the greatest experience of my life. And so for that 97, 98 season, then doing that, then getting back into the routine for 98, 99, the 100-odd points and absolutely walking the league and everything, that was just, that was wonderful. That was that really was the best time of my life. And that, that's how it started. And then from there, ITV made me an offer. So I had the difficult decision. I had to leave Metro and uh, went from ITV to BBC. And, and here we are now. So in comparison, then, the early 2000s must have been absolutely crap. <laughs> well, the early 2000s, I was at ITV and um, it, it was a wonderful job. And I learned a lot. I, I properly learned how television worked. Um, so it was invaluable. And, and I got paid quite well at the time as well. In fact, I've never got paid as well again. Um, but um, it, it was a great job. I couldn't turn it down. But it was very frustrating because I was kind of like the third stroke, fourth choice commentator. And this okay. was before, and, and this was before, like match of the day since 2004. We, we, we have cameras at every, obviously, at every yeah. single game. And the running order, the, the fabled running order, it, which is not rigged in any way. It does depend on the drama and the best game and the story and all that. It's not biased. Um, you know, it could be anything. In those days, it was an old-style highlights thing, the premiership on ITV. It was, um, there were only cameras at three games. And then the, the other game would be whatever had the most goals and was the best story, you would dub commentary on afterwards. because And, and that was generally my job. Three weekends out of four, that would be my job. I'd be sitting around the studio on a Saturday and then I'd have to go in and put a five-minute commentary on afterwards, which is awful because we're not actors and we're not very good at it. And it's not commentary as far as I'm concerned. So it, it was very, very frustrating time, but a very, very good time because actually, if I think back, I learned a lot about how edits worked and, and, and all sorts, which has all helped me now. So it's it all happened for a reason. And the times that I went out to actually do a game sort of once every three, four weeks was, was magnificent. And I, I loved it. And that's why to this day, I still cherish every single game I'm at because... Um, I've seen the other side of it and you, you don't want to be there. It's intriguing to to hear about what goes on behind the scenes. Um, I don't know I mean, if these, you're aware. Days, these days, match the day, that doesn't happen. There are no dubbed commentaries. Yeah. The commentator is at the game, commentating on the game live. That is it. And then it's mm-hmm. edited down. That's it. But in those days, when there was only full coverage of three games, you had to put the commentary on the goals afterwards because you yeah. didn't know where the best game was going to be. I, I mean, I'd, you might not have the answer to this question, but I've always, I've always wondered, match of the day, in the build-up to that going on air, that must be just chaos, trying to get everything packaged it's, it's, up. And... It's organised chaos. Yeah. Um, yeah, and we have a guy, the editor at the moment, has been for a few years, is Richard Hughes, who's, who's brilliant. He's a very, very cool customer. Um, and he will liaise with Gary, and between them, they'll come up with the, um, the running order as regards which games when um, there is no there is no structure to it in terms of they have an idea there'll be a semi-script come out on a Friday of if the results go the way we we think they will this will be the running order it is never the actual running no. order <laughs> because there'll be something that happens that goes right that's been pro- an example I always use was, was I think it was the first season we ever did this actually it was a season I joined 2004-5 and a game between Norwich and Middlesbrough at Carrow Road that was scheduled to be bottom of the shop led the programme. It was 4-4, and it led the programme out of nowhere. And so people complain that they're always on last. This is These are fans from every team, by the way, always complain they're on last. You're not. Um, it, it all depends on the amount of goals, the quality of the game, the story of the day, the league table, for example. You, you, know, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't come off the top of the table clash and suddenly go at the other end. There's got to be some sort of narrative. Um, yeah. 
you know, that result meant that. And it's sort of a flow. It's got to be the story of the day. That's the point. So there's, there's never any bias. It's purely in terms of editorial and, and what works best for the programme. And, you know, Sunderland fans, in fact, Ellis Short, here you go, there's another Ellis Short story here. He once, can I swear, by the way, am I allowed? I don't uh, yeah. I do no, apologise. I apologise in advance to anybody listening who's particularly sensitive to this sort of thing. But he actually, um, I was introduced to him in the tunnel, even though I'd met him several times before. Somebody decided to introduce me. And I said, oh, yeah, we've met. Well, he pretended he hadn't. And uh, he went, oh, you're the guy from Match of the Day. And I went, I went, yes, yes, nice to see you again. He went, well, I should say, fuck you, buddy. And I went, really, should you? Why should you say that? Why are we always on last? And I couldn't, I just went, oh, you've been on the message boards, have you? <laughs> Uh, and this was in the tunnel at the Stadium of Light, and he, and he sort of just ignored my... And I tried to explain to him that at the time, Sunderland were... were this was sort of February, March time, I think, and Sunderland were up with a mid-table team. If you're in mid-table, well, you're, not, the story? You're, not, you're not likely to get on as, as, as high up the order, unless it's a belting game, as teams that are challenging for something or fighting to stay up. Because outside of Sunderland supporters, it's not that interesting to the rest of the country. And and this is what this is this is how fans think, and this is what we try to get across them. This is a program for the entire country, not just your team. Yeah. Well, I suppose <laughs> a, a good barometer of impartiality is when you get complaints from all twenty teams, isn't it? You must be doing something. And it right. does. And it does happen. Exactly. That yeah, that, yeah. that does that does happen. Uh, and I suppose as a caveat, no, no, I won't go there. <laughs> no, there is that. <laughs> honestly, there is there is not. There, it's purely decided on how the program will be best received. That's it. I'll, I'll take your word for it. <laughs> no, it's, it's, um, I can honestly, I can swear on it, honestly. The, the one thing I'll I'll say to you, Ella Short story, is if only he paid half as much attention to the football club he was owner of than <laughs> well, where his team were on match of the day. But anyway, history, uh, history yes. tells that story quite well. While we're on the topic of the World Cup, when I was doing a little bit of reading online about you, there's an urban legend that I'm not sure if you're aware of or whether it's completely made up. But you'll I be able think, to confirm. I think I know what you're going to say. Go on. Was Norwich Union? Norwich Union? No, I don't know what you're No, you don't. Say. Well, I suppose the best way to start would be, have you ever been an employee of Norwich Union? Uh, no, but I was at General Accident, which was the precursor. Well, what I read online was you and one of the linesmen for the final of the 1998 World Cup were the first duo of former Norwich Union employees <laughs> to be officially involved in the World Brilliant. Cup final. Brilliant. Not not so true because it was it was general accident when I was there, and they weren't bought by Norwich Union until several years later. And I was only well, there six. I was only there six months. That spoils my fun. I'm not gonna uh, not gonna try <laughs> was and hide, it, hide was, my. Was it, was it was it Darren Can or Mike Malarkey? I wonder who it was. I've no I've no idea. To be honest, I, I've searched and tried to find the the officials from the day, and I, I can't I can't find them anywhere. So wait, wait was um, Dar- Darren Can and Mike Malarkey were the uh, assistants at the World Cup in tw- was it 2010? Did you say is that the one? No, uh, ni- the 98, 1998. Oh, World Cup final. Well, they, they, yes. well, they weren't they weren't English officials, were they? Well, no. They, I think was it a was it a um, Spanish referee or? That's a hell of a that's a hell of a stat. That's probably wrong. But, well, um, there we go. It's incorrect, but it's interesting. Uh, obviously, you're still well connected in the region. You're an ambassador of the Foundation of Light. Um, yep. Is it been something you've been involved with for a long time? Uh, since it started, they asked me to promote stuff that um, that they're doing, and, and whenever I can help out, I do help out. Um, I'm obviously not in the region as much as I used yeah. to be because of um, being sent here, there, and everywhere. But um, what? It's a fantastic charity. Fantastic. Oh, you know what? I've just had a look. I've just had a look. Sorry to go off topic. You, you, you pricked my conscience. 
The assistant referee for the 98 World Cup final was Mark Warren of England. All right, okay. So... And uh, he had a South African running the other line, and a Saudi Arabian guy was fourth official, and the referee was a Moroccan called Saeed Belkola. But Mark Warren, if I have a look, he was a police officer from Walsall. Well, maybe you did a stint at the Irish <laughs> Union. <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah, there you go. Anyway, well, there we go. You learn something new every day. Yeah, but but no, um, the, the Foundation of Light is a, is a magnificent charity. Again, set up by Bob Murray, Bob to, Murray um, yeah. to to give something back to the the town that gave him everything. So a noble cause, and obviously, particularly now, particularly. Yeah, now. moving on, I suppose to. Um, to England and the other day I noticed on, on Twitter you were talking about the penalty shootout of the Columbia yeah. um, two Sunderland lads the, the two Jordans Pickford and Henderson they featured heavily both in that game no more so than Pickford and, and the rest of the tournament I just want to know really what your thoughts are on, on, on their rise through football since they've departed Sunderland uh, well I've, I've been a massive advocate of Jordan Henderson um, I've been trying to tell everybody that I first saw him play at 15 and I've been trying to tell everybody that he would be an England captain and when he succeeded Gerard, and everybody had a moan up, and the Liverpool fans were moaning, blah, blah, blah. And I said, he will be just as good. He will do just as good a job for you. And I've been trying to say how good he is. And I think we've found out in the last few weeks when Liverpool had their blip when he was out, just, oh. how, import- just how important he is to them. And the stuff that he does that's unseen. Um, yeah, undoubtedly. You know, if, if Harry Kane wasn't around, he'd be England captain for absolute certain. I mean, there'd be, there'd be absolutely no doubt about it. So um, I've, I've always been a, a big advocate of Jordan Henderson. We all knew, didn't we? Let's be honest. Everybody yeah. knew how good he was and was going to be. He is he is the absolute model professional footballer for the 21st century. Um, yeah, he doesn't he's... do anything wrong. Everything is done correctly and precisely. Yet somehow he still splits opinion nationally. Well, not, the, definitely not in the North well, East. But... Well, if he splits opinion, if people watch and don't understand what he does, then they don't really understand how a football team works. I completely that's, agree. That's, that's what I would say to that. They're, they're not seeing the unseen stuff that is essential to the way that any team works. And and I think it, the, the, the same, same people will probably praise N'Golo Kante to high heaven. <laughs> you know, brilliant, yeah, yeah. awesome player N'Golo Kante. Um, I don't know why, but Jordan Henderson, for some reason, not seems quite so glamorous. But I think this season that's changed a little bit. Um, and as regards Jordan Pickford, I was just watching back that penalty save today. I have a few reservations with Jordan Pickford because a little bit like Joe Hart, I think he gets too excitable, too, yes. pump, too pumped up. I want my goalkeeper to be like a David Seaman, almost, you know, relaxed and just in charge and in control. Yeah, not, not ponytail David Seaman, pre-ponytail <laughs> David Seaman. Um, I want him to be like that. I don't want somebody super, super charged and a little bit excitable. But that said, if you look back at that penalty save in the shootout against Colombia, how strong his hand is when he puts mm. his wrist up to block that penalty, it is, it's brilliant. It's, not, it's a fantastic save, as was many of the other saves he made during the World Cup. What, what totally made that game for me, and it's one of my abiding memories of the last World Cup, was England finally win a penalty shootout at a World Cup. And in our position, we're commentating on it. We didn't have live rights for, for, for the game. It was live on ITV, that one. Um, but we do, obviously, we do it live. It's no no difference. We're there and we're doing it live. So it's, it's no difference to what we're doing as a job. So I'm just wrapping up for full time for the highlights later on. I'm wrapping it up. And I turn around and we have five live in the position right behind us who had John Murray commentating and they had Chris Waddle as co-commentator and Mark Chapman sitting there. And the first thing I feel is a pat on my head and Waddler is giving me a pat on the head. And I turn around and shook his hand. And Chris Waddle, the man who missed the penalty in 1990, is in floods of tears. 
and it just sparked me off. And I'm going now just talking about it. It just, ah, oh, what? That was almost like re- redemption for him. And as somebody who was in flood of tears myself as an 18-year-old watching it, it set me off as well. And it was just, it was wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. Great, greatest moment I've had at a World Cup, as including that 98 final. It's, it's, I've always found England quite funny that people, people who support clubs in the Premier League, they, they are bigger fish to fry, so to speak. But when you go to a major tournament with England, I don't know, it just, our nation, I think, connects fantastically well and yeah and like you say the emotions are there's something else it's different to your different to your club team it's I feel. It's, well I, i've always i've always had it maybe maybe growing up supporting york as well maybe that's it yeah maybe that's that's what but i, ha- I have always had it i've always i kind of felt i have to as well as i grew up in a bit of a rugby union household my dad watched the rugby and he used to thump the armchair in england rugby weren't doing that well and i never liked it but I almost felt, oh, right, you've got to support England. That's what you do, is it? And I sort of, I sort of just have. I've always been a little bit obsessed with England and, and come alive at the major tournaments anyway, even before I was doing this job. Um, so it's, it's, always meant, it's always meant an awful lot to me. Um, and I was looking forward, actually, to this summer, and hopefully it'll be the same next summer, because the one thing I want to do at a World Cup, the World Cup and the European Championships are the two things that I enjoy more than any other part of my job. I'm incredibly privileged to be at Premier League games every week. I, I realise that and I do adore it. But all of those are a prelude to every two years I get to do these tournaments for four or five weeks, which are the greatest thing I ever do. And I, I just, I, I live for them. And that's not happening this year. And I was, for the first time, wanting to experience what it's like here because when we're in Russia and we were seeing the scenes from back home from the pubs and that, mm-hmm. we, I was with my producer and we were both saying, oh, I wish we could be in two places at once. Because I don't, I want to be here. I want to be at the games, but I want to see what it's like at home as well. And this summer was going to give us the chance for that. We were going to be at Wembley watching England, but then we'd we'd have the atmosphere as well around the country. Yeah. Um, and I was really looking forward to it. But hopefully, if the format stays the same and the venues stay the same, then we might have it next summer. Fingers crossed. Yeah, fingers crossed. Um, so I suppose. We'll, we'll go from the highs of a World Cup and, and land with a bump down in National League North. Obviously, we'll, we'll discuss York and their plight. And top, top of. Top yes, of. well, it's been better this season. I know, obviously, battling with Kings Lynn, I think they've got two games in hand. And they, they, I actually, I, I follow that league quite closely because I've got, um, I go to watch Spenny Moore now and then, and, and obviously yeah. they're in that division. The, the first thing to say, it's an extremely difficult uh, division. You think National League North would be pretty poor standard of football by comparison to the professional game it probably no. is but there's a there's a lot of players in I think in, in and amongst League 1 and League 2 who would not stand out by any means at that level um, no. and obviously what was it with York because I know you you had the the, the initial relegations you lost to Shields in the FA Cup um, my hometown and um that was the start of the decline and obviously things are starting to look a little bit better now. Sat top of the league, albeit Kings Lynn have those games in hand, but what was it that really started off the decline? No, the, de- de- the decline started quite a long time ago at the start of this millennium. Um, I, I can't, I'm going to have to do a very, very brief synopsis because it's been a, it's been just such a horrible saga. It started with a, a former chairman of ours by the name of Douglas Craig, who basically sold, sold off the ground, um, to developers and well sold it off he split the club into two he had the holding company and the club was separate from the holding company and he was in charge of both so effectively he owned the ground and 
himself and a couple of his other directors then made a huge fortune um, by selling the club, um, one of whom was Barry Swallow, who played for York City in the 1970s, early 70s, late 60s. Uh, absolute legend of the football club as a player. Um, no, then he became, a, then he became like a director and he used the club basically to further his own means. The club that made his own reputation that allowed him to be a successful businessman. Um, he then basically took all the money out of them and he is now stripped from our club history. You cannot mention his name. In fact, I feel like spitting just saying it just then. White um, he, um, he, he just absolutely horrible um, what he did. Um, so that's how it all started. There were marches, there were petitions. There's a particular moment, actually. Um, a lot of Sunderland fans will remember this. Sunderland weren't playing one weekend. I was at Birmingham Crescent for a game and we were in the middle of our Save Our Club and the buckets were out and hordes I can't remember who the opposition were. I can't remember if there's any Sunderland connection whatsoever. I don't think there were. I think some Sunderland fans, because of Marco, because of Dennis Smith, because of John McPhail, Viv Busby, I think they felt the connection. Yeah. Um, and a load of them came down. I mean, I'm talking hundreds. And I can vividly remember Sunderland fans going about with these buckets going, come on, it's your club, come on. And they were leading the whip round. <laughs> it was it was magnificent. Um and that was that was years ago. Um, so that's when it all started. Then a crook came who's no longer with us. Actually, he, he died of something. I can't remember what. But a fellow called John Batchelor who took the club over, who was basically an asset stripper. So that wasn't easy either. Um, the fans then took it over. Supporters trust. That's not easy. Then uh, the current owner, Jason McGill, took it over and did very well. Did very well. Put the money in and got us back into the football league where we'd always been in 2012. We won the FA Trophy and following weekend, went back to Wembley again and won in the playoffs against Luton, got back into the league and all was going rosily, all was going well. Um, actually, season after that, got into the playoffs to go up to League One again. Um, lost to Fleetwood uh, and then the decline set in. Just stayed up the following season, went down the season after that, went down from the conference the season after that and and that's it. And it, it it's, it's just a... It has just been bad decision after bad decision. As far as I'm aware, there's nothing dodgy gone on. It's just been a sad consequence of bad decisions made. Uh, decisions made for the right reason, trying something, but it's just not worked. And here we are. And Jason's still the chairman, the owner. I don't think he, I don't think he goes to games anymore, but he's still the owner and he will be until we're in the new stadium. That's another thing which has lingered on. There's a new stadium that we're supposed to be moving into. We're supposed it's to move into it years ago. Is it the plan? Is it next season, or is it even sooner than that? Who knows? It was supposed to. It was supposed to be about six years ago, if not longer. It's finally up. It's there, but they haven't had the test events. If this season had been going on, we were talking midway through this season. Then it became March. In fact, there was an announcement in January something about it'll be March. We've got to have a couple of test events, and it'll be March, which seems strange in the middle of the season. Then everybody's saying it by the end of the season. The last report I heard was it's going to be November. It, it's 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 there. It's up. It's an 8,000 all-seater stadium. It's there. It's ready. But it's not quite finished. Bit of a white elephant. (laughs) It's it's incredibly strange. And Booth and Crescent, none of us want to move, but we do realise a bit like Rutger Park in the 90s, it is falling down. It costs more to run than it's worth, almost. So, um... It's one of those classic rounds. It's It's, 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 it's a fantastic place. I've been to Booth and Crescent a few few years ago when uh, I think it might have been either your final season in League Two or in the conference when you played Darlington. And that was yeah. Darlington's last season. Yeah, I was at, at that game. And uh, no, it is. It's a, it's a fantastic stadium. It's a shame that 
but like you say, like Roger Park, like all, all stadiums. Everything has its time. Everything has yes. its time. And, and and this this was going to be, you know, if we can go up this year, then it becomes, you know, people will come to the new stadium. And, and then it, it, we've seen the effect with the stadium of light in the late 90s. People yeah. come and then people keep coming because the team's successful. And then who knows? It can be the the the, the the stepladder to, to getting back up into things. It's all down, all down to what happens on the field. Of course, when you're an out of town stadium, it, it's, it's only going to be well less than half full most weeks to start with. Um, but it's a fantastic facility. I just pray that they can get into it soon and make a success of it. But it, it's been a sad tale. It's been a really sad tale. There's been a lot of anger about it, that the club and the supporters trust no longer get on. And, there's a lot of politics involved, which which I wouldn't bore people with, but like like at any club, quite frankly. But um, top of the league, can't argue with what's happening on the field. And Kings Lynn were two points behind with four games in hand. They are now two points behind with two games in hand. So yeah, the last two. So when when it all resumes, let's hope it does all resume, and um, hopefully we can kick on and get it done. Fingers crossed. I'll keep my fingers crossed for you. Thank you. Thank um, you very much. So. I'm going to ask you a question. Um, it's, you might think it's going to be a political question. It's not, uh, but it's regarding one of the topics before this um, pandemic began. The BBC licence fee, obviously there's been a lot of talk. There's a lot of support for it, a lot of support against it. I'm not going to ask mm. you which which camp you're in. I'm, I'm pretty certain I know which one you would be in. But um, Well, I see- think, by the way, I'll just, sorry, sorry to interrupt. I'll just say, I think this this is all showing. This, this current crisis is just showing yeah. how invaluable the BBC is, and the, yeah. and, and the NHS, how valuable and what we pay for actually is worth far more than we actually pay. I know it's seen by some as a tax. I understand the arguments, but believe me, we'd be a lot poorer without it. Yeah, I'm strongly in that camp. I mean, it's it's an essential service for me. It's an institution. It's something that we need to protect. I'm not going to say as no. um, strongly as the NHS, but it, it's definitely no. up there in terms of priorities of of, of, of our country. Uh, genuinely do think the BBC is such an important institution but the question I will ask in terms of the Premier League we see it with with the NFL the American football they've got a very good a very successful um, model where you can essentially access any game they've also got a program red zone which is like a, a live goals high, uh, mm. live yeah, yeah. so do you, do you think or how close do you think we are to seeing a, a dedicated Premier League streaming service? Obviously, Amazon, which I, I think you were involved in, weren't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, worked. Um, it went well. It went well. It did, and, and from a from a fan's perspective, I, I thought it was a, a fantastic product. And if it could be rolled out tomorrow, I would happily pay the money that I, I currently pay for for Sky Sports, BT Sport. I don't know. It, it'd have to be led by the Premier League as regards Premier League coverage. Um, and they would probably want to lead it themselves, I would think. You know, they have PLP going out around the world. They have their own television channel going out around the world anyway. So they're kind of ahead. So it'd have to come from them. At the moment, I would imagine they're they're getting better money with the current model. I don't, I don't know. I, I'm not. I try and keep away from all that, to be honest, um, yeah. and just do my job. Um, I don't think we're far off. I've done a lot, I've done a lot of work for a company called DAZN, uh, which is based in Canada. Uh, they do a lot of boxing. Boxing is their specialty yeah. at the moment, but they, 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 they do a lot of um, soccer, as they horribly call it. They do a lot of that as well in, in North America and English-speaking Americas. And I think they're well-placed to get into the English market as well. And they call themselves the Netflix of sport, where a menu comes up and you select what you want to watch, a little bit like Amazon did over the Christmas period. Um, so I think it's coming. I think the Amazon thing is maybe being used as a test um, 
and it seemed to be pretty well received. It was it was pretty good. They stuck to the coverage as you know what it's just the football, which was quite nice to be involved in. There was no frills. It was just we're putting on the games. Here they are. Um, so I, I really enjoyed that. So I, I think it's coming, but I wouldn't know. I wouldn't know. You don't have any insider. No, I don't, I don't have anything like that. I stay out of this, and I stay out of this for one reason. Um, well, for many reasons, but a, a former football manager of great repute, who was a, a lovely man, um, and I've done a lot of work with him over the years, David Pleat, once told me, and it's the best advice I've ever received, and we were in a cab in Turin um, doing a Juventus game. I think, I seem to remember, it was Juventus v Celtic in the Champions League. It might not have been, it might have been, a, might have been Juventus Newcastle. I can't, I can't remember. Yeah. Anyway. We were in Turin in a cab and David at the time was also director of football at Tottenham and he got a call from his secretary and it was all sorts of politics and stuff going on and players' contracts being discussed and all this. And I could overhear everything. And he sort of uh, put the phone down. He said, oh, but you got all that, didn't you? And I just said, David, nothing to do with me. It's um, I've just let it wash over. I'm not bothered. I'll just watch the games. And he said, good lad. He just said, believe me, you concentrate on the first whistle to the last because you know about that and you're good at it. He said, because the more you know about how this game works and how this industry works, the less you'll like it. And it's the best advice I've ever had. Well, it's not worked out too badly for you, has it? It, it, It's so true, though, isn't it? The more you get into something and you delve into the deep and murky world of business, oh, you fall out of love with it. I still love the game, and that's it. Yeah, I mean, it's probably quite a privileged position to be in. I mean, speaking as a Sunderland fan, we... No more than anybody, I would say. We've had the the sort of attention more on the off the field, the, the financial, than than really the football up until, I would say, last season. Last season was the first time I'd really enjoyed football for mm. what it's supposed to be for for quite some time. So mm. but, uh, it definitely is a, a good bit of advice, that. That's, that's all we want to do. Deep down, yeah. that's all we want to do. That's why we go. You know, most people work in the week and then that's their release on a Saturday. They want a few drinks. They want to go at the game. They want to see their team win or certainly try and entertain them and at least do their best. And then you talk about it for the start of the rest of the week and then you build up to the next weekend. And that's exactly, yeah. that's, that's that's life to me. Mm-hmm. No, I totally agree. It's the way it should be. But as you said, money and business element of it has, has changed things slightly and made it a little more complicated. So, mm. yeah, hopefully it can get back to that. But And, and oh, maybe a lot please. of people still have it like that, but not me. <laughs> not to be too miserable. But anyway, to, to, I'm going to ask you one final question, Guy, to, on, to end things on a bit of a higher note. Throughout your career, what single event, game, story, what is it? What's been your ultimate footballing moment? Oh, oh, oh I, knew, I knew that was coming as the last question. I'm never prepared for it. I, I, genuinely don't, I genuinely don't have one. I always go back to what I've discussed before in 98, that, that sort of summer of the playoff final, for, for all it was, I still think it was for the benefit and the betterment of the club that it went the way it went, actually, um, now looking back. And then the World Cup final and the World Cup after that. And then all the World Cups that I've done, the European Championships, I've, done, I've been at everyone since, European Championships and World Cups. And, and they're the things that, that really stand out. Um, but still, to be honest, still, the ones that I really enjoy the most, the most of all, are when I'm not working and I just pay me money and go in and stand behind the goal on the David Longer stand or the Shippo as we call it at York and uh, and get to just watch a game having had a couple of beers and that's still they're still the games that I most look forward to and the games that I I treasure because that's that's kind of what it's about I think that's a good place to end because I think that's really what everybody is now looking forward to doing going back just taking in a game of football not worrying about anything else 
once all this coronavirus, COVID-19, whatever you want to refer to it as, is over, we're going to all just get back and enjoy something as simple as a game of football. Absolutely. And please, just please heed the advice, everybody. Have a few weeks in. Watch some old games. Stay in. Please stay in. And let's just break the chain in this thing and get back to normal. Wise words and... Guy, it's been an absolute pleasure taking a wander down memory lane, keeping a virtual minimum of two metres apart during that wander. <laughs> but nonetheless, well, thank you very that, much that, for taking the that, time to talk. 80-odd miles apart. We've done quite well. We have, we have. But no, thank you very much. And um, all the best to you, to York. And I hope that the for your sake, for everybody's sake, the, the season can resume and Sunderland can somehow find the way from seventh in League One to the top two. And we'll all be celebrating a, a double promotion with York and Sunderland come well, whenever it may come. That'll be wonderful. How are Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know Cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain. I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.